So I have a friend named Mofti. Some of you have met him. He's an Egyptian, and he's a missionary in the Middle East. Um, and if you've ever spent time with him, uh, you'll notice that as you're speaking to him, he will often say, praise the Lord. So I noticed this the last time I was with him, when he was asking me for life updates and uh, about my family and the church, and most everything I said was followed by a soft, praise the Lord. It wasn't an interruption, it was just kind of part of his, almost like breathing for him. That when he heard these things that I was announcing, he would praise the Lord for them in his own heart in a simple way. And I love this because it made me much more aware of God's presence in my life that everything that happens to me, God deserves praise. How well do you praise God? Do you only do it when life is going well? When things seem to be running smoothly and there's, not, there's no real headaches that you're having to face? I'll ask you kind of more of a, a speculative question here. How well do you think you would praise Him if life wasn't going so well, and meaning if life's not going well, if Christianity was not still so socially acceptable in our country? How well would you praise Him? Would you praise Him in the face of persecution? Would you, would you praise Him in the face of, of ridicule? Would you praise Him when family, and, uh, family members and friends left you and betrayed you simply because of your faith? Would you praise Him? Well, more and more, this is a question that is becoming real for us as we, I think, draw closer to more of a post-Christian society. And in our text today, this is the main theme that is introduced in verse 3. That God is to be blessed or God is to be praised because of His saving work. But before you think, well, that's easy to do because that's our salvation we're talking about and that's not really that hard to do. We just did it for half an hour just now. Know that the Christians to whom Peter is writing are not in a comfortable situation. They didn't have this going on for them. Persecution, ridicule, and abandonment by family and friends for being a Christian was very real. They were not having the conversations that we like to have today where it's like, well, you believe what you believe and that's fine with you, and, but we can still be friends, we can still be family members. No, they were ostracized. So the first century flavor of Christianity was marked with direct suffering for one's faith, which sometimes led to death. But the 21st century American flavor of Christianity is marked with the suffering of not having food and coffee on a Sunday morning. Or the service or the slides are not working correctly, although they were great today, so thanks for whoever did that. Or having to work in the nursery once a month. I mean, that's about the extent of it sometimes for us. So I want to point out three aspects from the text of why we should praise God in the midst of any circumstance that comes our way, good or bad. I'm breaking this up into three ways, and I don't think these are in your... In your um, I had trouble with my outline this week, so I just left it blank. But there's three of them still. So one is uh, looking at our present possession. 
to what do we possess as believers. Two is how does this present possession change our present posture. And then three, adding all of that together, what is our present reality? To our present possession, our present posture, and our present reality. So first, our present posture. So our text this morning has been described as an exordium. So uh, if you don't know what an exordium is, this is something that prepares readers psychologically for the message that is to follow. So it, it readies the audience to receive instruction. So I did this in my introductory remarks. I, 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 uh, I introduced or I had an exordium to introduce the topic so that you are ready to listen. So verses 3 through 12, if you notice, give no explicit commands. There's no commands there. But it seeks to create the atmosphere in which Peter's readers can receive the rest of the letter because there's about to be a lot of instruction after this. So immediately what Peter does in verses 3 through 5 is to tell his readers not who they are in Christ. He's already kind of done that in verses 1 and 2. But what they have. What they possess. And verse 3 introduces us to the entire theme of our text today, which is one of praise to God for the salvation that he has given to believers. Now, this was a common way of greeting. You you see this in Paul's letters a a lot, and it's often followed by some work that God has done in the readers of the letter. And the work here that Peter is pointing pointing to is, is worthy of praising God for, is that the reality of their salvation only happened according to God's great mercy. That's what Peter leads with here. So let's understand this aspect of who God is, that he is merciful. And in what way is he being merciful here to these Christians? Well, it's in bringing salvation to the Gentiles by including them in the inheritance that was long ago promised to Abraham. So mercy is, is not getting something, the definition of mercy is not getting something you do deserve. And in this case, we do deserve God's wrath. But God, in His mercy, rather than giving us His wrath, gives us salvation instead. How does that happen? Well, salvation comes from His Son, Jesus, taking on the wrath deserved for us upon Himself. That's mercy. And our text tells us, because of God's great mercy, He has caused something to happen out of that. He has caused us to be born again. His mercy is what provokes the cause. And this is important because it gets back to what we discussed last week concerning the foreknown elect people of God. So Peter is re-emphasizing here that our salvation is God's doing. This is why he says he is blessed or why he is worthy to be worshipped because God alone causes you to be born again. And that is something worth praising him for. Because as the hymn says, or the newly written hymn says, If you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. 
So in case you aren't familiar with the Bible, let me tell you that the words that Peter uses here, born again, are not original to Peter. He did not think them up on his own. Uh, The actual idea of being born again is an illogical statement if we don't understand where Peter lifted it from. I think in, in, our, in churches today and amongst uh, Christians, we, we don't give that a second thought. But if you think about it, how crazy those words sound, uh, we probably wouldn't use them as much. But this is why I had us read from John 3 earlier. Uh, and it's the story of a ruler of the Jews named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is curious about Jesus, uh, and he has questions. So what does he do? But he goes to the man who can answer his questions, Jesus himself. And when, and Nic, when Nic, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and inquires about Jesus' identity, Jesus answers, answers him with what seems like a riddle. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. To which Nicodemus responds like any of us would have, how can a man be born when he is already old? Can a man enter again into his mother's womb and be born? That doesn't make any sense, Jesus. And these are great questions that should be asked because it gets us to Jesus' answer here, which is to say that this is not a physical birth. That That is impossible. So he's not talking about a physical birth of the flesh, but a spiritual birth that only happens according to the Spirit of God. It's something God must do in you. You don't do it yourself. Just like you didn't have anything to do with your own uh, birth into this world. You did not work yourself out of your mother's womb. You did not try to do good deeds to see if you could, could be released from this prison, you know, known as, known as the womb. You didn't do any of that. The same is true of a spiritual birth. You don't work yourself out of your old life into a new life with Christ. It's impossible. You can't do it. This is God's doing and only His doing. Paul states it very clearly in Ephesians 2.8. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So going back to Peter's wording, that it's God who causes you to born again, actually answers Nicodemus' questions. How so? Well, according to God's great mercy. That's how you're able to be born again, Nicodemus. It is God who causes, causes the Spirit to draw you, and it's God who causes your eyes to be opened to the truth and reality of the Gospel. That's why the Scriptures use language like you were blind. You were dead. And there's nothing you can do about those things. God does them. And He opens your eyes to the truth and reality of the Gospel. So what is the reality? Verses 3 through 5. Look there with me. That we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, 
undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So Peter says three things are true about this reality here in these, in these three verses. One, it's a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus. That's why salvation that God brings is, is, is living and it's hopeful. It's because it is founded in Jesus who died and rose and is alive now. Second, he says it's our inheritance. So if you know anything about inheritance, you get something that you get when someone dies and passes on to you, but we have an inheritance in the gospel and that it is something that we already are attaining and benefiting from now, but also something that we will benefit from and attain uh, into eternity. It's our inheritance. And then third, he says, it's our salvation. It's the assurance of Christ's work on our behalf to save us from our sins, to bring us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. And this is something to praise God for, Peter says. And because Christ is our present possession, we can also praise Him because this changes our present posture. This changes how we now live in this world. Look at verses 6-9. through Peter writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So I didn't give a lot of background uh, last week on Peter's original readers beyond their identity being found in Christ. They are, they are Gentile Christians. They're, they're, they're believers. But what I didn't say was, was that these were a people who were not only scattered about the world, so the dispersion means they were scattered, uh, mainly because of persecution. If you remember Paul, when he, before he became a Christian, persecuted the church, and the church was spread out all over the world through that. But they were also people who were living in exiles in foreign lands, lands that were not theirs, were, were not their family lands. But they were also people experiencing direct persecution from others during the time of the publication of Peter's letters. It's, it's a big part of why Peter wrote this letter to these Christians. To encourage them in their faith as they walk through a degree of suffering. Now, some have speculated whether or not um, Nero ruled during this time. There was a couple of different emperors that ruled during this time. Um, it's, it's pretty clear that Nero was not ruling at th- th- this time. But nonetheless, they were already beginning to be ostracized by the society around them um, as Christians. And then future, future um, you know, kind of, we know history now, but in the future, they were going to experience persecution as well. And Peter knows this, if you remember back from John 21 last week, that Jesus tells Peter, not just feed my sheep, Peter, but Jesus also tells him, this is how you're going to die. You're going to die a martyr's death. You're going to be, you're going to be killed for your faith. So Peter knows, if this is true for me, 
it will also be true for the church as well. And, and just so you know, this is still relevant to us today. Just because we're comfortable now does not mean that that will always last or will always be this way. So Peter's words are for us as well. So within first century culture, Christianity was not something that was as well known uh, as we would say it is today in our culture. So Christianity is kind of in the limelight. Uh, sometimes it's not, it's not really good as, as uh, the, this week's news stories have shown us. Um, and last week's as well. <laughs> Seems like something new is coming up every week. Um, but there weren't Christian bookstores. There weren't uh, all these books being written by popular Christian authors. There weren't uh, celebrity pastors and mega churches and, and things like that. Christianity was a small sect of, of faithful men and women who simply believed what they saw and what they heard concerning Jesus Christ and simply sought to live it out in their day-to-day life together. Because for the original readers, their identity as Christians was not only something to rejoice in, but also the reason they suffered grief in various trials. They were being marginalized by their society, alienated in their relationships, both family and friends and business partners, and threatened with as well as experiencing a loss of honor and socioeconomic standing, which was very, very important in the first century. So Peter is seeking through his words to reassure the Christian churches in this part of the world as a stormy season of persecution is beginning. And he doesn't do this by saying to them, the best is yet to come. He does it by grounding them in what God has done for them in Christ already. So the beginning of verse 6 reads in the ESV translation of the Bible, In this you rejoice. But another way it could be translated is, and I like this better, is, In whom you greatly rejoice. We don't rejoice in ourselves. We don't rejoice in how well we can handle suffering, or we don't rejoice in, in, in our feelings, uh, how, you know, how we're told you know, by our culture to, to think or act or, or do, but we rejoice in a person. We rejoice in a person. A person who is never changing like our culture and current situation is. And that person is Jesus Christ. Peter uses this same verb in verse 8 to describe our joy in Christ when he says, though you have not seen him, meaning some of these Christians had not seen Jesus physically, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And this is important for Peter to communicate right here in this moment because in the second part of verse 6, Peter takes a hard right and moves from joy to grief. He writes, Even if now, for a little while, you have had to suffer various trials. And this is the thrust of why Peter is writing here. Because he wants to assure them of their hope as they face these various trials. 
And let me just say, these various trials, now I, I, I don't want to downplay anybody's trials that you're going through, but I want to be specific as to what Peter is talking about here, like I mentioned earlier. These were not just, um, you know, I forgot to take the trash out, and the trash guy came, and now it's piled up until Friday. That happens to me all the time. Um, these weren't trials like, uh, you know, I lost my job. Uh, or, or we had a miscarriage. All those, those are trials, and those are hard, and God meets you in those trials. What Peter is specifically talking about are trials that are brought on by your faith in Jesus. That's foreign to us. We don't have many trials that are brought on upon us because of our faith in Jesus yet. So in his commentary on these uh, verses, Ed Clowney and if you wanted a commentary as we walk through First Peter, Ed Clowney's commentary is fantastic. Um, but he helpfully points out three reasons that Peter gives of why we can rejoice in the midst of these types of trials that are brought on because of our faith in Christ. The first reason is that our hope in Christ points us beyond the trials. It points us beyond the trials. Our trouble will only last for a little while, Peter says. It'll be a little while, meaning our time on this earth is a little time, but our hope in Christ is forever. It's forever. And Peter, again, is not just saying this is, this is some sort of motivational speech or TED Talk. Rather, he's pointing us to exactly what our Savior Jesus did. Jesus is our model, Hebrews chapter 12. Let us run with endurance the race set before us. How do we do that? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him did what? Endured the cross. So Jesus is looking beyond the trial of the cross to His joy. And that is the only way that he can endure the suffering of, of the cross because his joy was set before him. And that joy, just in case you don't know, his joy being our redemption, he took great joy in that, which then leads to God's glory. And that is what Jesus was looking at as he endured the cross. The second reason we can rejoice in suffering is because our joy is actually strengthened through the sufferings we endure. Verse 7, look there with me. Peter says, So that the tested genuine, genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter is telling us that your faith is going to be tested, by fire, and it's also going to be a way in which uh, it, it proves itself. It proves your faith at the end of days. So, so if you call yourself a Christian, there are a couple of ways the Bible gives to how one can react to sufferings. Jesus describes to us the first way in his parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4, when, when he talks about the seed that is sown on rocky soil. This is how Jesus describes this particular seed. He says, other seed, describing all sorts of seed, but this is the, this particular seed, other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it, it sprung up, since it had no depth of soil. 
And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no roots, it withered away. Jesus then goes on to to describe this type of person in verse 16 of this same chapter. And he says this, And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who hear, who, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution or trials arise, on account of the word, immediately, immediately, they fall away. They don't endure. And the reason they don't endure is because their roots are not deep. And because they are not deeply rooted, when trials come, they immediately fall away. No questions asked. This isn't worth it. I thought this was fun and joyful, and it made me feel good on Sundays, and I had a lot of friends, and I was doing okay in my life, but this is not what I signed up for. And they walk away. So the second way we can respond to sufferings then is to endure them. To endure them. Peter says that through the process of enduring our sufferings, that that God himself is actually refining us like gold. This is a two-fold process where, where the fire of testing is purifying you. So it's getting rid of anything that is not faith. Have you experienced that? I know I have. And then the second part of that would be testing the genuineness of your faith. I mean, you think about Job, who God could boldly say to Satan's face, go ahead and test him. He will not fall away. Do whatever you want to him. He will not deny my name. And he doesn't. So trials then as a believer, should not surprise you or depress you or make you anxious when they come because we know whose whose hand sends them. And it is the hand of a heavenly Father who does all things for your good. That's who sends them. So the third reason we can rejoice in suffering is that when Jesus comes... He will bring far more more than just an end to our sufferings. He will also bring his reward of blessing. Verses 8 through 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining or receiving the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. Paul describes it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. He says, For this light, momentary affliction. So remember, Paul can speak about this. He has suffered in every way possible. Every way possible. He he even lists it out. And he calls it a light, momentary affliction. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Meaning that the glory that you will experience in the new heavens and the new earth with Jesus will crush 
whatever sufferings you may be experiencing now or you may experience in the future or you ever have experienced. The glory that is to be revealed in Jesus at the end of days will crush those light momentary afflictions. And I believe this to be true at all levels. From the the verbal mockery, mockery and ridicule you may take as a believer, all the way to martyrdom, to dying for one's faith. Do you believe that? Do you believe that there is nothing that you suffer in life that compares to the glory that will be revealed to you in Christ? Do you believe that? Because it's true. So we can give God praise because of our present possession that changes our present posture that finally allows us to understand and see with clear eyes our present reality. Look at verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. Which is incredible. And the things that have, that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. So what these verses are telling us is that the Old Testament prophets, this is why we can't throw the Old Testament out, The Old Testament prophets were pointing to the New Testament reality of Christ in everything that they were doing. They were pointing to Jesus. This is is what they searched and inquired carefully and eventually prophesied about. Was the Christ to come, the Messiah to come. They were inquiring, Peter says, of what, what person or time the sufferings of Christ and the glory of Christ were to take place. And this is what they prophesied about. This is what they proclaimed to the next generation. So why is this important for Peter's readers? Because he's highlighting what their present reality is. That Christianity is true. That Christianity is not some uh, passing fad or new idea that's just going to go away tomorrow. But, but it's something that has been happening way before any of, any of Peter's readers had been born, including us today. And God has been at work in this way for their salvation all this time. And Peter proves that by pointing back to God's promises given in the Old Testament that are now fulfilled in Christ. So think about our study in Genesis. Think about God's promises to Abraham in Genesis. Peter is saying, these have come true now. And you are experiencing these things right now as we speak. So they should praise God because their present reality is that they live in the age of fulfillment. The fulfillment of biblical prophecy. They live in an age where some have been able to visibly see the promises come true. They were able to set their eyes on the snake crusher who was promised so long ago in Genesis chapter 3. Here he is. And he did exactly what the Old Testament said he would do. 
just a couple of things to point out about this salvation that the prophets prophesied about. One is Peter says it was a grace that was to be yours. A grace that was to be in your possession. In other words, God's favor and God's power were meant for you, Christian. They were meant for you. And this is different than the Old Testament prophets, prophets experienced it because this grace has been revealed in Jesus Christ. So in Hebrews chapter 11, speaking, just, you know, speaking about all the men and women of faith, says this, "...in all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised." It wasn't fulfilled in their time, the author of Hebrews is telling us. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. So out of that entire list, if you've read through it, out of that entire list, at the end of it, it says, we have it better than Abraham, who walked with God. We have it better than Moses. We have it better than King David. We have it better than all of the prophets who ever walked the face of this earth. We have it better because we have it clearer than they. And that, was, that is what they were helping us to understand. That is what they were hoping we would understand from their writings and their prophecies. And then the second thing about this is, is the reason we have it better than they is because of their faith. Their faith to pass the baton of grace to each generation after them. Look again at verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves. So what that means is they got to a point where they were studying the Scriptures. They were looking back at what Scriptures were available to them at that time, which was probably just the five books of of Moses, um, which are the five books that we have in our Bible. Um, And they were looking at um, maybe even some of their own writings, but they were also looking, just observing the world around them. And they were looking at the times and the places in which they were, and they, they got to a point where they realized, this isn't happening now. These prophecies aren't going to be fulfilled uh, right now in, in our lifetime, but it's going to be in the future. So what Peter is saying, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, they got to that point, but they're serving you. They're pointing to the reality and the relevancy of Jesus Christ, of the gospel. They're pointing that out to us through their prophecies. And Peter says they they searched and inquired carefully. So they were studying. They were studying the scriptures. They were studying the world around them. And they knew this to be true. And they were pointing ahead so that we could understand. In all, of this, in all of this, they wanted to serve us. They searched and inquired carefully so that we could see clearly what they could not, which is simply just the good news of the gospel. That they were proclaiming, even in the Old Testament, that, they, that God the Son had finally come and crushed the head of, ser- of the serpent and taken on God's wrath for us and defeating death so that we could be at peace with God again. Doing away with the sacrificial system, fulfilling the, fulfilling the law, both of which did not save, but only served as reminders of our need. They knew all of that would come to an end. The snake crusher has come at last. And it is He who has said, it is finished. And it is He who sits at the right hand of 
God Almighty and is He who will return for His bride one day. And Peter says these are things into which angels, heavenly beings, long to look. They're kind of like, kind of trying to peek over the curtain a little bit. They want to experience what we get to experience in Jesus. And all of this should create for us a doxological foundation. Doxology meaning just simply worship. All of this should create a worship-filled foundation for our lives. A foundation that is built upon the praise of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I'm just reminded of this, this song we sang before um, the preaching of your word began. And these words that we sang are, are essentially ripped right out of, of 1 Peter chapter 1 and, and reminding us, uh, should my life be torn from me, every worldly ple- pleasure, when all I possess is grief, God be then my treasure, be my vision in the night, be my hope and refuge till my faith is turned to sight. Lord, my heart will praise you. God, I pray that you would give us a doxological foundation. That our, that our lives would be built upon the worship of you. That whatever may come our way, God, in this world, that we would always remember to worship you. And the only way that we do that is through what Christ has already done and continues to do in us. And we pray all of these things in his name.